First Thessalonians 5. Verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and died for us and opened the way to you for us so that now through the living word we come into your presence and we call you Father and thank you for the written word that guides us through life and instructs us concerning who you are, who we are, what our purpose is, your plan to save us and use us in this life and this passage that we've just read and I will be instructed on is is a, a big part of that. So, Lord, would Would you be pleased to speak during this time? That's our request, and we know that you will be faithful to fulfill that request. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have spent the last three weeks um, sorting through one pretty substantial section of 1 Thessalonians, that of chapter 4 and verse 13 through chapter 5 and verse 11, and it was a substantial section, not necessarily due to its length, but due to its depth and its significance in sorting through some really confusing eschatology stuff and some um, incredible facets of our salvation, namely delivered from wrath, appointed to a salvation that is all of grace. And I think we've learned in the last few weeks The full expression of that salvation is what we will receive then when Jesus returns. But it's entirely possible that in the sorting out of all that over the last three weeks that we may have lost sight of or forgotten that all of that and all of where we're at today and all of where we will be pretty much to the end of 1 Thessalonians is still tied back to the beginning of chapter 4, which was the will of God in our sanctification. And our responsibility in relation to our sanctification to fight for and to strive for and to work to display that God's will for our sanctification is actually being accomplished in us. So we're we're still tied to the beginning of chapter 4. He's still talking about what God's will in our sanctification is and our role in light of that. All of these commands fall under chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Based upon that, we can do a little bit of a rehearsal and remind ourselves that we've been called then to such things as abstaining from sexual immorality, loving each other, 
living quietly, minding our own affairs, working with our own hands, comforting one another, building one another up, staying spiritually awake and watchful and sober as we await the inevitability but the unpredictability of Jesus' return. And now as we continue to pull all of that hopefully concisely forward into our text for this week, we're now called to intentionally strive for and fight for this. Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. This would probably be a very awkward text to preach on if it were not the next set of verses in our study of 1 Thessalonians. And frankly, if Chris and I were not ministering in a church where what is commanded here were not already taking place in many ways. Paul is, in fact, charging the church body in Thessalonica to respect and to esteem those among them who had emerged as spiritual leaders in Paul and Silas and Timothy's absence. This is an incredible passage. It's also a very rare passage in Scripture because it is Paul teaching the church, in essence, how to treat their pastors. We have entire books of the Bible written to pastors, namely 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, along with loads of instruction within other letters written to churches concerning how pastors should treat church members. But this is somewhat of a rarity. Along with Hebrews 13 and verse 7, Hebrews 13 and verse 17, and 1st Timothy 5. I would like to take the time to read all three of those texts because our text today is a fitting opportunity to do so and and those other passages are so helpful in speaking to this same unique relationship. So just listen for a few moments as I read Scripture. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. 
just pull out the commands from those passages to the church toward their pastors. And I think there's a a healthy picture of the relationship. Remember them. Consider their lives. Imitate their faith. Obey them. Submit to them. Honor them by compensation. Do not be quick to receive an accusation against them, but when sin is discovered and they do not repent, rebuke them publicly. And do not take lightly your role as the church to affirm or to thrust men into pastoral ministry. I think... Those commands capture both the reverence and the seriousness of James' words in James 3 and verse 1, which says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So there are qualifications for this role or disqualifications, depending on how you look at them. And there are instructions for the faithful fulfilling of this role among those who have been called. But there are also instructions concerning how the church should treat those whom God calls and the church affirms for this role, which is where we're at today. I think it would be um, entirely appropriate. I haven't run this by Chris, but I'm sure um, he, he can tweak these words. But I thought it would be appropriate... Uh, before we actually begin into our text, just to let you all know that Chris and I are very thankful for you. We're very thankful for you. We're very thankful for the way in which you treat us. There, there is a very real sense where this would be a dream text to preach as a guest speaker in another church where you have nothing to lose in what you say. And possibly every opportunity to confront and to rebuke a church on behalf of pastors who have been beat up and run over and chased out by people who are directly disobedient to this text. It happens all too often. And I've personally served in multiple churches like that. And I have friends who have as well or are currently And God will deal with those sins in the church in his time, in his own way, for the display of his glory, for the preservation of unity, for the restoration of his designed order. But when I thought of Christ's fellowship in relation to this passage, I immediately thought of a comment that um, Kevin made to an article that I posted on Facebook recently. You you may have seen the article in other places. It was by a pastor named Jared Wilson, and it was called, I Wrote This Blog Post on Church Time. And there was just a very brief interaction when I posted it on Facebook. And and Kevin commented, and it just popped back into my mind. He, He made this comment. He said, pastors will be held to a higher standard since they are, quote, taking responsibility for the souls they lead. But also being human, they are not perfect and subject to the same feelings we all have about our jobs. He said, we need to to appreciate 
and to recognize their calling with these things in mind. And, and I thought that was a really helpful and a really accurate summary of the mindset here at Christ Fellowship. A deep appreciation and accountability for your pastors that's based on an accurate grasp of the weight of our role, but an understanding along with that deep respect and appreciation that neither of us is perfect, nor will we ever be perfect, nor have you ever had a pastor who is perfect, nor will you ever have a pastor who has arrived or is perfect yet, you rightly continue to trust us. While at the same time, not only rightly give us room to grow, but also rightly push us to pursue our own growth. And feeling that support from you makes serving you all a very joyful thing. So on behalf of Chris, I do want to say um, that both of us are very thankful for that. Many of you have stood by us. And, and not just stood by us as in, I'm just going to passively wait and see what happens. But many of you have stood by us through some major difficulties. And through what for a while seemed like constant Difficult transition here. And while you've never ignored our faults or our failures, you have continued to support us and encourage us, and you've given us room and freedom to hopefully continue to grow ourselves. And you have helped to stabilize this body and us as your pastors in the process. Chris and I have actually commented a number of times just meeting in in private how in the world has this church survived everything that has been through in such a short period of time and our conclusion every time is it is strictly God's mercy and grace but where has that mercy and grace been most palpably evident it has been palpably evident in and through many of you. So again, I just want to say as we're beginning a passage that talks about respecting your pastors, I do just want to reiterate, we are very thankful to be here serving you today. Yet, my goal in commending you is not to imply that this passage is now irrelevant to us as a church. Like somehow you've got it all figured out any more than I would dismiss the relevancy of charges and commands to myself and Chris toward you as if somehow we had our end figured out. The truth is, we all both ways have limitless room for growth. And it is in fact God's will for us to fight and strive and work hard toward our growth from both ends with the hope that for the goal that Christ might be seen and known more clearly, more fully here always. And so that what he commands at the end of our passage in verse 13 might always be prevailing here, which is peace among each other here.
Our passage itself begins with a request that I'm actually going to argue is also a command. So what I'm saying is in verse 12, when Paul opens up by saying, we ask you, brothers, to respect and esteem your leaders, I'm saying those are not simply light requests. I'm saying those requests are commands. And this is just Paul's polite way of saying it in much the same way that you might address somebody that you have authority over at times, depending on the nature of the issue, in a more gentle way that communicates the same weight, the same thing, as if you were to exert your authority in issuing a command just without doing so. You probably do this as parents all the time. Things like, hey, Maddie, how about you teach Piper how to share his toys by sharing your toys with him? It has the same effect, but in a more gentle way than if I were to exert my authority in that moment and say, share! Or... Maddie, I'm asking you in this situation to be patient. I'm not leaving any wiggle room there for her to choose not to be patient. My best guess on why Paul chooses to do this here specifically is because he wants their obedience to what he says here to be willful and joyful in much the same way that you or I might use a gentle request instead of a command that still leaves no room to respond in any other way than obedience. But in this specific area in particular, I want whoever I'm addressing to willfully, joyfully obey. I think that's what's going on. I say these are commands, though, intertextually, not only because they relate all the way back to God's will in our sanctification and our effort to work and strive and act and walk in such a way that pleases God. Again, going back to the beginning of chapter 4. But I'm also saying these requests are commands because the assumption here is that the leaders who had emerged among the Thessalonians were worthy of respect and esteem, which kind of tips us off to where we have to go with this before we go any further. Paul calls the church to respect and to regard with favor not merely the leaders among them, but specifically the leaders among them who are actively functioning in the way that they've been called by God to function in the church. And we could go over to the pastoral epistles and talk through the qualifications of who a church leader is to be in his character, but Paul has a short summary here in our text of three actions that actually reveal the 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 character that make a church leader worthy of the respect and favor of his church. So all we've got to do then is just play the opposite game from our text for a moment to get a picture of the kind of leader 
who is not worthy of respect or favor or honor or quite possibly not worthy to continue serving in that role. And the portrait of that man from verse 12 would be a lazy, careless, timid man. But before that line of dishonor or disqualification is crossed, there is a world of room for differing personalities and giftings and preferences and theological nuances and personal annoyances and frustrations that still leaves a pastor deserving your respect and esteem and love. So what I'm saying to you then is if you withhold what God commands for reasons such as personal annoyances, personal frustrations, small theological tweaks or nuances or different giftings or personality traits that God has in fact bestowed upon him. If you withhold what God commands for reasons like that, I would say you are sinning and you need to repent. Because even in the passages that I read from Hebrews and 1 Timothy, where the church is called to obey and submit to and honor its leaders, the assumption is always that your leaders are in fact doing what those passages instruct them to do, which is what you called them to do when you made them your leaders. And what you called them to do based upon instruction from God's word is teach you the word, watch out for your soul, and model for you a way of life that is faithful and worthy of imitation. And in relation to those kind of leaders, Hebrews calls the church to obey and to submit in such a way that makes their job a joy and not a grief. On the other hand, if a church ever finds itself with leaders who have stopped fulfilling their calling, then Paul in particular elsewhere includes instruction concerning the confrontation and rebuke of leaders. And it is very serious. It's very severe. But the assumption in Scripture always seems to be that you've done your job as a body in calling qualified men to lead you and that the men you've called to lead you are likewise doing their job to teach you and care for you and set an example for you to follow. So the presumed relationship in Scripture between the church and its leaders is one of mutual but distinct service. Calvin says, Paul is so careful to address this here because the church having leaders and the church honoring and esteeming and loving its leaders is for the advantage of the whole church. The neglect of which would be a dishonor to the Lord of the church, but the obedience of which would be an honor to the same Lord of the church. I want you to listen to this striking paragraph from G.K. Beale 
related to this very thing. It, it kind of has to do with um, a, somewhat of a, a modern phenomenon of churches um, and their just catchy one-sentence slogans that may in fact be catchy, but may also in fact reveal deeper philosophical or theological problems that would complicate obedience to commands in Scripture. So um, li- listen to what he says, and I think you'll, you'll grasp what I'm saying. This is powerful. Too often, churches proclaim that their goal is that every believer become, quote, a minister. I can instantly think of like 10 churches or institutions where that's the, that's the slogan. The implication, he says, is that every believer is to be equal with every other believer and that ideally there should be no one in an authoritative position over anyone else. Of course, it is true that everyone in the church is equal in the sense of being in the image of God and being in Christ as a citizen in the kingdom of God. Accordingly, all should grow in their recognition and exercise of the diverse gifts that they have received from God. Here's the, here's the sentence. But Christians are not equal in the sense that they have functional equality in the church. So pause, G.K. Beale. Let me just ask you, How does that statement resonate with you? If it bugs you, then you might be the kind of person who's always looking to find fault in your leader's personal lives. Or the kind of person who sits back in settings like this and always thinks of everything your pastor left out of his sermon instead of everything helpful and nourishing that he had in his sermon. Or how much better you could have said it rather than actually benefiting from how the one called to say it has said it. And and I've been the person that he's describing there and I've actually made phone calls to pastors from years ago in my life and apologized for how poor of a church member I've been to them. Listen to this really incredible quote from Leon Morris. He says, Leaders can never do their best when they are subject to carping criticism from those who should be their followers. Good leaders need good followers. I'm trying to point out that what what Beale points out that's a threat to obedience to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13 in the church is probably closer to home and more of a part of our culture than we realize. So back to... Beal for two more sentences. He's, he's just said Christians are equal in image of God and citizenship in the kingdom, but they're not equal. They weren't designed to be equal in functional equality in the church. He says, rather, Christians have differing gifts that entail different kinds of functions. And leadership is among these gifts. 
So the call in Scripture is always to mutual service. But the call is also to functional distinction according to God's gifting. And the distinct function in the church that's being held up by Paul in our passage for respect and favor and love here is pastoral leadership. And I want to point out that when Paul proceeds to describe the characteristics of leadership that call for such respect and honor and love and favor, the distinct nature of them is thoroughly spiritual. Therefore, the corresponding actions called for in relation to them are what they are for that reason. And it's captured, I think, best in that powerful statement in Hebrews 13, which is that pastors distinctly, uniquely are called to watch out for your souls. So his requests are for a default disposition of respect and favor and love. And these requests are, in fact, commands. And these commands are based on an assumption that the leaders in your church are qualified men who are actively faithful to their calling. And his way of describing their calling here is by three descriptors. All spiritual in nature. First, they labor. As Calvin says, they labor for the building up of the church. The everlasting salvation of souls, the restoration of the world. In short, they they labor for the kingdom of God and of Christ. And he says, the excellence and dignity of this work are inestimable. Hence, those whom God makes ministers in connection with so great a matter ought to be held in great esteem by us. So he's saying they they labor, not only meaning they're not lazy, but they work hard at what they do. And you should feel it in the way they serve you and serve the church. And again, as Leon Morris says, the way they serve you should make you want to do all that you can to forward that work. I got this far into um, prepping and I thought it would be uh, maybe helpful to at least half-heartedly apologize for so many quotes from other pastors and teachers this morning, but I, I felt particularly burdened to add other voices to my own due to the nature of this text. And um, I'm not a guest speaker at another church, so I I hope that hearing other pastoral teaching voices uh, is somewhat assuring to you that some of these statements are being said by others who've been far down the road, much further than either of us. So pastors work hard to serve you spiritually, and the exercise of their service toward you, secondly, is, according to verse 12, one of Governing. Verse 12 says they are over you. But in being over you, they are also under a greater authority. Which is why our text says pastors are over you in the Lord. That phrase means everything to a pastor because it transforms our governing role 
from what Peter forbids in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3, which is domineering over those in your charge. It transforms our governing from that to humble servitude that reminds us that we are not lords. We are stewards of a flock that has a shepherd who single-handedly can lead and protect and feed his own flock. And he promises not to lose a single sheep. And yet he was pleased before the world began to exercise his sovereign shepherding through under-shepherds called pastors of local flocks called churches. So our labor is or ought to be one of humble service that is at the same time a very real governing, but that governing is a stewarding because we're under a higher and better authority to whom we will give account. Part of our functioning as a steward under Jesus' authority, yet in authority ourselves, is not only to feed you, and I think that's captured best by the working hard imagery, but the third descriptor that he gives is to admonish you. As verse 12 also says, working hard to feed you the word is part of the nature of our calling to lead you, but being thoughtful and careful to admonish you is also part of the calling of a shepherd to protect you. So when somebody in authority over you admonishes you, you ought to feel it the same as you should feel after an encouraging sermon. And that feeling should be a God thank you for caring for me so that You feed me so that I'm a healthy sheep, but you also correct me when I think that I'm healthy enough to wander from the flock and to run away from the protection of your commands. And you actually do that in real life through real people here on earth who sincerely have been called by you and equipped by you through grace to care for me. So being in a church... And being under authority and needing to be fed and corrected and cared for and watched over is not a negative thing in any way at all. Unless you're still holding out for the hope that somehow you are sufficient in and of yourself for everything that you need to meet Jesus when he comes. And I don't think that's any of you. But local churches and leaders in those churches who function together with specific instruction under a greater, perfectly loving and caring authority, that is a design and it's a gift from God for our collective good and for the collective good of his flock. And it goes all the way back to chapter 4 and verse 3. This design is for our sanctification. So again... Thank you for respecting your leaders. And as verse 13 also says, thank you for esteeming us or regarding us super abundantly in love because of our work. And, And I do just want to say, on the one hand, continue in this. But I do want to say, on the other hand, don't just continue in this. 
I want to challenge you to never rest content in the way that you're currently expressing your respect and esteem for whoever God calls you to lead when he's actively functioning in the way that God's commanded him. One more Beale quote. When we understand what leaders actually do, love should well up in our hearts for them because of their sacrificial work on our behalf. I think, actually, it should be an an appropriate mutual response to this text today from us to you and from you to us would be from both ends to continue in our service toward each other, but from both ends again, never to rest content in our efforts to teach and care and correct and watch over and respect and esteem and, and love one another. And these efforts will be the most effective means of accomplishing what verse 13 calls all of us to, which is the end of our text today, peace among ourselves. So I'm saying that that short command at the end of verse 13 is not a new subject. It's not just an add-on afterthought. I'm saying the command at the end of verse 13 is directly tied tied to everything that has preceded it. And it relates specifically to your disposition toward your leaders. Because your disposition toward your leaders is an expression of your trust in God who designed the church that way. And working hard, fighting for strength, Deriving for obedience in these areas will be the most effective means of accomplishing what that final command in our text today is, which is peace here, prevailing peace. One more real quote, so I lied. But I want to, I want to include it because it's, it's so good. And it's a great point on which to end. He says, peace will result when love increases among those in the church, especially between the shepherds and the congregational flock. So peace through love and sacrifice. It sounds a lot like what Jesus accomplished for us. Peace through the blood of his cross, but it sounds similar, but don't confuse it. That was one way love that was one way love one way sacrifice that brought us peace by satisfying wrath and what Jesus accomplished eternally by himself he calls us to pursue mutually toward one another the accomplishing of which mutually here at Christ fellowship will only to a greater degree, magnify what he accomplished single-handedly. So let's commit afresh to fight and strive and work hard in these areas that directly relate to God's will in our individual and our corporate sanctification and our responsibility toward that end for the display of his glory in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we come thanking you for 
instruction in your word that in many, if not most, circumstances would be a very awkward, but in ours feel, feels just perfectly natural. Not forced, not threatening, not bizarre, not a major corrective to anything that's just gone foul. And yet not from either end. Such a strong pat on the back that dismisses us from finding the relevancy of this text to push us to greater degrees to fulfill our responsibilities toward one another for the display of your glory. So, Lord, we we come into your presence just trusting now that you might grant us a rejoicing in the health that is on display in our relationships here, but also such a degree of health that would just spur us to greater growth and effort so that the picture of Jesus might be more full and more clear here for others to see and know and come to believe and love and be loved by him as well. And I'm thankful, Lord, that none of this is unrealistic. It's all accomplishable by your goodness and your power. So we leave it all in your care now. In Jesus' name, amen.